The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I mean, there, there's a public good to, this, to the surveillance side, but there's also a really coercive element to that. Same thing with the contact tracing. Great for public health. You know, they can figure out if you might be at risk. But then it's got this other side where they can use this to control your freedom of movement, and it's already happening. So that, on top of the way things were going politically, this country has changed so much in these 10 years. And so that's what I set out to do, to show and to give a sense as much as possible who he is and how he might think and why this ideology is so important to him, why the Communist Party is so important to him. And then to also understand how that has impacted the way China has taken a turn in this direction over the last decade. Because I've just seen it happen with my own eyes. And it's a really relatively short period of time, just 10 years. I'm Natalie Orpet, executive editor of Lawfare. And this is the Lawfare Podcast, November 15th, 2022. Sophia Yan, pianist for the Lawfare Podcast and Rational Security, is also the Telegraph's Beijing correspondent, or at least was until the other day. She produced a new podcast entitled How to Become a Dictator, about the rise and rule of Xi Jinping and her own struggles as a reporter in Xi's China. Now she's in Taiwan after a hasty exit from the country. Sophia joined my colleague, Lawfare's editor-in-chief Benjamin Wittes, to discuss the new podcast and her departure from China. Who is Xi Jinping, really? How is he different from other recent Chinese leaders? Why did Sophia leave China? And did she take her piano with her? It's the Lawfare Podcast, November 15th, 2022. Sophia Yan explains how to become a dictator. Sophia, you left China in rather a hurry. Before we talk about your amazing new podcast, I want to ask you about the circumstances of your sudden decision to leave China and whether it has anything to do with the podcast. Yeah, it has everything to do with the podcast. I was working on the pod and a bunch of other projects. And, um, you know, the environment in China has changed a lot. It's tighter than ever. It's not likely to get any better anytime soon for journalists operating there. It's just very complicated to get work done, to get reporting done. And the risks are only themselves getting higher. So this was sort of a decision that was really hard to make. Uh, My editor suggested it first. 
And I thought, really? <laughs> it seems so dramatic. But they were right. And, you know, it took me a few days to kind of come around to the same thought, too. And I think in the back of my head, I had already known this for quite some time, that it was really becoming pretty inhospitable to journalists, especially to Asian female journalists, uh, especially right now. What has changed has happened over 10 years. But in this very moment, we've just had the 20th Party Congress. Xi Jinping is on for his historic third term. Politically speaking, we are in no man's land. China hasn't had this kind of one-man rule in a very long time. So we're in this totally uncharted territory. And how China's going to react at this point to anything it deems critical, nobody knows. Nobody knows where those red lines are. And it just, in this moment, didn't seem like it was feasible or safe to stay. So that's what happened. So it wasn't that anything in particular happened that said to you, time to get out. I mean, you've been in China for a long time, and it's a big decision to up and leave for good. There was no specific precipitating event, just a general erosion of the atmosphere? It was a lot of things all at once. And I think, you know, I've spent 10 years total, five years in Hong Kong and about five years, a little more than five in Beijing. And those 10 years dovetail exactly with Xi Jinping's time in power. So I've really seen this country take a turn for the worse, really. It's become so tight to, to be in China, to be covering China from within the country. And there were a lot of things that kind of went into that decision matrix. But I think the tipping point was when I got back at the end of the summer, this was by now September, after I did quarantine, I went on my first reporting trip back in the country. And I was just trying to do something that should be fairly simple. Of all the stories I had planned, this was supposed to be the one that was the easiest to execute, or at least the one I thought would be easiest to execute. And all I was trying to do was to go to this tourist attraction, this little village. It's a set of caves, and it's been turned into a museum, and it's where she had spent seven years as a teenager during the Cultural Revolution. It's like part of his propaganda bio. It's part of the official line of who he is. And it's the subject of the first episode of the podcast. Yes. And it's, it's, it's like kind of like, think about log cabins for US presidents. It's a big part of how he presents himself as a man of the people. It's, you know, it, it's propaganda. The whole museum is propaganda. I was going to get some color to get some sense as to how he was presenting himself during this period of his life, because it's become such a centerpiece of what he refers to. He talks about this in speeches when he's meeting foreign dignitaries. He talks about it at home. It's in state media all the time. This is something that makes him, you know, this like, something that built his character. So he's referring to the caves all the time. And it's a tourist attraction. So I went, um, and it was sort of like a mess from beginning to end. I was only out of Beijing for a day. Uh, and on top of all of this, you have to think about the zero COVID madness involved. I don't even know where to start to explain the zero COVID madness. Um, everyone's got health codes. If you're traveling, it's a mess because you have to declare where you're going because it's part of the contact tracing. They want to make sure that they know where you're going, who you might be coming into contact with. They test you all the time. So when you land, you have to declare where you're going. And because Beijing was keeping, and still is really keeping things so tight, if you're out of Beijing for a while and your health code changes, it becomes very hard to get back into the city. So I was trying to do this preferably in one day because it will take, it takes some time for the health, the health code system to update. So I was trying to go in one day out and back. 
But when I landed, I already had to declare where I was going because of the contact tracing. And then, of course, all bets are off. And even when you buy the ticket, they already know where you're headed. And if you're a foreign journalist and you're going to this particular city, it doesn't take a genius to figure out what you might be trying to do. But again, it's a tourist attraction. Lots of people go. Communist Party officials are required to go to sit and listen to lectures about party history, about Xi himself. So even though this was right before the Congress, of course, it's a more sensitive time. It's a sensitive topic. It still didn't seem like, you know, I wasn't going to Xinjiang doing like a massive human rights investigation, right? I was going out to get some color about this guy I was trying to cover. So I got there, got in a taxi and started driving toward the caves. Off the highway, there were these COVID checkpoints and they check your ID, they check your health code. So of course they figured out, figured out who I was. By the time I got to the caves, which was like a two hour drive from the airport, at the gate, there were these guards who were taking photos of me, my driver, the license plate. I showed up, showed them my health codes, and right away they ushered me to the security office. And this other guy goes, where's your press card? <laughs> and I was like, oh, man, <laughs> they already know. I mean, of course they already knew. So they let me through. They searched my bags. They were looking for, like, notebooks and for equipment. And they said, no filming, no interviews. And I was like, gee, <laughs> well, <laughs> what am I going to do now? <laughs> you know, like It was like every everything they could do to preempt any sort of reporting. And so I go through, I try to go to the caves, got a whole bunch of people following me around. The group following me around gets bigger and it's very noticeable because there are very few tourists. There are very few visitors. Normally this would be a lot more populated with people coming like with their families to bring their kids, just like on a, you know, any sort of regular family outing or the officials going for those lectures. But because of COVID travel has been tamped down. So it was really obvious that there was like this entourage of new friends I had and there were some things that were sort of amusing. Like at one point there was one guy walking along. I could see his feet under on the bottom of the hedge. And then he like poked his head around the side too. It was like trying to see what I was doing. I mean, some of it aired on seriously comical, uh, but it was very clear, you know, they, they didn't even on something like this, that was official propaganda. They didn't want me to do very much. And they wanted to keep track of everything I was trying to do. And there was a concerted effort to make sure I couldn't really talk to anyone. There were a few tourists there, a very small number. And there were tourist souvenir shops. Those were forced to close, like the people manning the shops. Like I would go into a cave and come out, and then the people who were manning the shops, like the whole thing would be shut, like locked, and those people would be gone. Uh, or the plainclothes minders would sit down at the tourist stand you know, it was pretty obvious what they were doing. And so I didn't stay there very long. I was there in the end for about two hours and then left because it was clear I couldn't do very much work and get very much else. And it really wasn't worth the risk of A, getting stuck out of Beijing or being detained for, you know, hours and hours. It was kind of a waste of time. And so I think that incident really put pretty clearly in my head uh, how little we can do now as journalists. I think if I could still pursue certain stories then maybe the risks are worth stomaching at this point, still for now. But in the few days leading up to the Congress, you know, China cut all travel links, for instance, to Xinjiang. As far as I know, they're still cut. So things like that make it impossible for me to even get to the place I'd want to do stories about. And so it was all of these things. It was this cave incident that sort of made it very clear in my head that this was maybe just not the right time anymore to continue pushing forward. So if you had been still in China and the Telegraph had released the first three episodes that it has now released of this podcast. What do you think would have happened? You know, I think the answer to that is 
I don't know and that nobody really knows. That was one thing that I and my editors were concerned about. One of the first things I did when I got back to Beijing was to go around talking to everybody I knew. I had the usual questions for them, where they think the red lines are now, if they thought that China was more or less likely to act bombastically before the party congress, more likely because they want to keep things stable and quiet, or less likely because they don't want to create a fuss on the international stage. Nobody had an answer for that. To a certain extent, nobody ever really knows how China will react, but usually there's enough engagement with China and other countries, with diplomats of other countries, that there's some sense or some way to gauge where China might stand. And at this point, there really isn't that much engagement anymore with major Western countries, not on that level, not to the level where people can kind of at least give a sense or have a sense or make an educated estimation. And that was something that I was really surprised by because I also felt the same. I couldn't really make that estimation myself. The people I speak to couldn't either. And that's what I mean when I say we're really a no man's land, that there's no sense where we go from here. I mean, we are really in unprecedented territory. He is now in power for at least another five years maybe potentially for the rest of his life. And this is something that the Communist Party worked really hard to not have happen again. So where we go from now is anybody's guess. All right, so let's talk about the podcast, which uh, you got out of the country and then released the first three episodes of. It is mischievously entitled How to Become a Dictator, but it is not a uh, lighthearted how-to manual. Uh, the only lighthearted how-to manual elements of it are the titles of the episodes, uh, which are kind of chapter headings in the How to Become a Dictator. So I'm, I, I guess my first question is, why this comic how-to framing of what is really a very serious subject, which is how this one guy dismantled the kind of manufactured pluralism of the Chinese Communist Party in the post-Mao era. What we wanted to show was how things have changed in these 10 years. When he first came to power, there was some hope, I suppose, with every transition in leadership, there is some hope that there's going to be some sort of change or some reform. And he was the youngest to take that position, youngest ever to take that position to, to be at the top. There was some thought that maybe he would be a little bit different. And with the way China had gone, they were opening up, you know, for quite a number of years, China was moving toward this direction of becoming more open, also even becoming more socially liberal in terms of allowing civil society to flourish. But at the same time, the Communist Party at the time was undergoing its own challenges. Corruption was, the party was just such a mess. I mean, it really was, corruption was everywhere. And so Xi Jinping was put in charge to try to make things right again. And at first it seemed like everything was, going the way you might expect. He launched this anti-corruption campaign to try to clean up all these crazy excesses, to clean up all the bribes, to make sure he was getting rid of people who weren't so honest. But then over time, it started to become clear that this was much more than just irregular 
anti-corruption crackdown. The crackdown widened a lot. And so what we wanted to show was how this really changed over 10 years and try to segment it in a way to have these themes to understand what had happened. Because it all happened at once. And in the moment, it was hard to see where things were headed necessarily. But now we have the benefit of having this hindsight to look back at how things have evolved over 10 years. And it's actually very, in a way, much more clear when you think about it that way. Do you think he was always planning to concentrate power and, you know, create one-man rule again in China? Or do you think that is something that evolved over the course of his 10 years in power? The, the, the title of the podcast and the, the framing of the first three episodes really suggests that there was a method to it. And that suggests a degree of intentionality that I'm curious to have you articulate. Was this a plan? There's a lot of ways of thinking about this. It seems like he was very ambitious from the start. And I should caveat this. I have not interviewed Xi Jinping. No, nobody has, actually. <laughs> so what we have is what China Watchers call reading the tea leaves, right? We try to glean as much as we can from the sources that we do have. And from everything that I've gathered in my reporting, it does seem like he had this sense that he was, for whatever reason, the chosen one, possibly because he comes from these red roots, this revolutionary background. His father was one of the trusted confidants of Mao who had fought alongside him to put the party in power in 1949 to establish the People's Republic of China. And their kids, their sons and daughters, this generation called the princelings, they have this red status. They were born with like a, a red spoon in their mouth, if you will. So it seems like she really feels that his generation is uniquely positioned to rule, is born to rule. So it's entirely possible that he believes so much in the ideology that he really thinks the only way to sort of right the ship, especially after all that corruption that the party was faced with, that this was the only way to do it. He seems to really believe in the mission of the party, in the role of the party, and he seems to think that he is the one to do this now, to turn the country in this direction. And the title itself is, in a way, a bit tongue-in-cheek, because it's very clear China is under authoritarian rule. He is a dictator. You can look up all the definitions that he... Def I, I did that a lot. You know, I, I looked up in all these different dictionaries how dictator was defined, and he fits those definitions, right? Um, but it's a bit tongue-in-cheek because they're always talking about how China is democratic, that the people have a voice, things like that. I mean, they use in the same breath this term that they've used since the Mao era, democratic dictatorship. <laughs> you know, it's like, what? <laughs> so it's trying to parse through how they see their system and why they would use such a term, democratic dictatorship, and why they think that they are presenting trying to understand how they present themselves to the world. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, Big culprit this time is something called My Life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have My Life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story, that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. 
your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I mean, they that term is borrowed, actually, from... Lenin's term democratic centralism it is. which of course is it's essentially synonymous so I, i'm curious about the caves which um bind together the story of your exodus from china with the story that you present in the first episode of the podcast so to to briefly summarize Xi's father is a high-ranking party official. He is purged in the Cultural Revolution. His teenage son is denounced and sent out to live in deprivation farming conditions. Uh, he lives in a cave for seven years and emerges from that at shortly before Mao's death, a apparently fervent communist. Uh, who ju- who then applies 10 times to join the Communist Party before he is admitted. So then he uh, adopts this story of his own repression as his kind of origin story within the party and rides it as a kind of legitimation device. And then... The Communist Party does not want you to see those caves. And I, no part of this makes any sense to me. So I want you to break it down. First of all, if this is his origin story, why do they not want to, if he talks about this in every speech, why don't they want you to go see their propaganda to see the story (laughs) that they're promoting? Number one. And number two, why, you know, you, you quote somebody in the, in the story, or maybe you say yourself that he may be the ultimate expression of Stockholm syndrome, that he, you know, why is his own purging and repression a story that from his point of view, first of all, recommends the party? Um, to, you know, and secondly, recommends him as a leader of the party. No part of this story makes sense to me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so the cave, yes, you, that is absolutely the point. In, if I am there and I can't even report on the official propaganda narrative, then what am I allowed to report on? I mean, it's sort of the, the, it's almost, in a way, it's, it's just so ironic. So I suppose a few things. I was there on October 1st, a national day. So this is China's national day. It's a big public holiday. And this was two weeks out from the start of the party Congress. So anything about him at the time, even now, 
is very sensitive. Anything about him at any time is very sensitive, but we were in a very politically sensitive moment. So in the time leading up to the party Congress, that probably had something to do with it. In a way, no news is good news. I think there's some of that sentiment too. Even if everything presented there is officially approved already, there's no telling from the government's perspective how I might use it. So I suppose they're thinking about that too. I do think that period of time had something to do with it, but I don't know for sure because... Okay, so let me pause you there because... So you think that the calculation runs something like this. She is not going to the caves to report uncritically, unironically, the story that we tell about the caves. Therefore... Any other take she has on this in this period of time, other than basically quoting his speeches, is uh, likely to be damaging. So not now is kind of the the thinking. I think anything that runs that could be perceived as running counter to the official narrative from the party is perceived as negative and damaging because it means it anything that gives them any doubt, anything that might challenge their credibility is always something they're concerned about. And I think in this moment, it was even more so of an issue. You know, in the in the few days before the Congress, I actually went online to Chinese social media, to Weibo.com, and I searched his name, and there were no search results for his name. So imagine if you know, imagine whoever, you know, whoever you're thinking about midterm election just passed in the U.S., if you were to go on and search any candidate's name and you couldn't find any search results on Twitter or whatever your social media platform is of choice, that's how tight things were. And it just shows how much control there is in, how much interest there is in controlling what people know of him, what people are allowed to say of him. And, I just don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, I'd be really very happy to go back to China to continue covering the place from inside the country. But right now, it's just not possible. You know, kudos to those who've managed to stay on or those who are perhaps even possibly getting new journalist visas. But right now, politically speaking, it just feels like we are in this completely new world. And I I personally felt particularly exposed because of my background. My parents are Taiwanese. The prospect of potential war with Taiwan is rising. Probably not going to happen tomorrow, but it could be in 10 years. It could be in 15 years. It could be in three years. Again, probably not, but we're talking about a guy who is in so many ways staking his name and legitimacy and legacy on these big hot button topics. So what if one day something makes him go just, you know, he just snaps and he moves, right? That's not impossible. All signs, you can read them and come to your own conclusion however you wish. But that's the reality. We're at this point where one of the most powerful and influential countries in the world has a guy at the top, and nobody's really all that clear how he thinks and who's advising him and how he's making decisions. So that's, frankly, pretty nuts. And I felt really very exposed. I have Taiwanese roots. I'm an American citizen and I'm a foreign journalist. Like how many more boxes can I tick? You know, <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I just need, you know, like. <laughs> and you've already been a, a bad girl from uh, the party's point of view. You've reported from Xinjiang. You've done some bold stuff. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not there 
most favorite person, I think. <laughs> so tell us about the what the scope of the podcast is. You've released three episodes. First of all, is is that the whole thing or is there more to come? And what's the what's the scope of the project? So we've just put out a fourth episode and there will be a bonus fifth episode in about a week's time. That'll be a, a live panel discussion over Twitter spaces that we'll put also on the same podcast feed. And so it's our deep dive into who Xi Jinping is, who he is, what makes him tick, where he's headed, and how the country has changed over the last 10 years. So let me pull back a little bit. There were some experts who did think that he was going to go in the opposite direction of what a lot of people thought, that maybe China would continue to open up. But there were some experts who thought maybe that wasn't going to happen. But I don't think anyone could have said 10 years ago how how much tighter things would have gotten. In a way, the pandemic was a gift because with the contact tracing, they were already ramping up this surveillance. And it's a double-edged sword, right? You've got lots of traffic cameras, so you can figure out, let's say you need a better system to repair potholes, or in this particular intersection, there are more accidents than other intersections. I mean, there, there's a public good to this to the surveillance side, but there's also a really coercive element to that. Same thing with the contact tracing. Great for public health. You know, they can figure out if you might be at risk. But then it's got this other side where they can use this to control your freedom of movement, and it's already happening. So that, on top of the way things were going politically, this country has changed so much in these 10 years. And so that's what I set out to do, to show and to give a sense as much as possible who he is and how he might think and why this ideology is so important to him, why the Communist Party is so important to him, and then to also understand how that has impacted the way China has taken a turn in this direction over the last decade. Because I've just seen it happen with my own eyes, and it's a really relatively short period of time, just 10 years. So... The first episode is about his period in a cave and his launching of himself. Walk us through the next three episodes just as a, uh, you know, what, what do each of the episodes cover? Yeah, so the first one we go through his life from, from when he's born to how he built a career, getting married, having a kid, and it ends with him coming into power. And then we look at what happens once he's in power and how things start to change and how people start to get the sense that maybe he's going to be a little bit different. And so the second episode is really a doozy. It's Order a Crackdown. That's the title. And it is all the different ways that the country has been squeezed over these last 10 years. So I interview people who have been thrown into China's secret detention centers. I interview Uyghurs who've been held in camps in Xinjiang. It is a pretty dark episode, you know. It's not some. It's not like fair. Uh, that is, I think that was probably for me the hardest one to do because of the topic. You know, I'm so close to these stories because I've covered them now for so long, and I've done all these interviews over the years. And it's it's really difficult to hear how people's lives are so impacted. It's really very sad. I mean, I talked to this teenager in Istanbul whose parents got 25 years in prison each because they sent him money abroad. He and his sister were living abroad. They needed money, you know, pocket money, basically, to survive because they were so young. And because of that, the Chinese state took that as a sign 
to make you suspicious as a possible terrorist, and then they put you in prison. I mean, this is not an exception. There are so many stories like this. And this is what's happened, that this kind of blanket way of dealing with things is impacting people at, at a very real, personal, sad, traumatic level. Stories like that used to be, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to say that they were rare, but it was a very specific group of people, Tibetans, human rights activists, you know, people who were really doing work that would upset the Chinese government. At this point with the pandemic, everybody feels the sort of sharp side of the state. You know, all of a sudden your building gets shut down, you get quartered off to a quarantine facility, or your health code changes, you don't know why, you can't fix it. All of a sudden, or, or if you're in quarantine, sometimes, you know, they put a camera at your door. In some cases, they put cameras inside people's homes. So now all of a sudden, the entire population of 1.4 billion are feeling the Chinese state in a totally different way, in a way that before dissidents would feel, or if you were deemed politically sensitive and you were being cracked down upon, that's the experience that you would have had. Now everybody is getting some form of this. So I think that just gives gives you a sense of how things have tightened and how by how much. Uh, the third episode, we go into the cult of personality and we look at how he's really remaking the country in his image and how he's putting himself at the core of everything. He is the reason we have zero COVID. He is the reason we have certain crackdowns in certain parts of society. He is the reason the party is great. He is the reason, you know, he's the vanguard of it all. And so we look at how that has also evolved over the last 10 years. And then the last episode, the fourth episode, looks at how he's built the country and how he has cast off this old way of operating under Deng Xiaoping, a previous great leader in China. He had this idea of uh, hide your might, bide your time to kind of lay low for a bit. You know, don't go out with your chest puffed basically. And under Xi, that's totally changed, right? He's overseeing vast development in the country and science and innovation. They're building out islands in the South China Sea. They're pressuring countries to cut diplomatic ties with Taiwan. There's no more sense of kind of chilling out and doing your thing. I mean, China is stepping out on the world stage and it wants to do what it wants to do. It wants to figure out a way to pave the road so that it's beneficial to its own interests. And so that's what we look at in that episode. So I'm curious, if you were still in China, you would have a sense of whether this crossed any red lines and what red lines it did. It's hard for me to imagine it wouldn't have. It's pretty hard hitting and quite unflattering. I'm curious if you've had any response that uh, at the official level or at the unofficial level how unhappy are you? Are they with you over this? Um, we haven't gotten that yet. Uh, the pod is still ongoing, so I imagine that they were quite busy with the party congress, and we may most probably hear at some point uh, something, I would presume. Uh, we did contact the Chinese government for comment, and they you know, we put across all the allegations, and they actually referred us to a speech that she gave. Uh, his opening speech at the 20th Party Congress, and they said that was their statement of record, basically, that they were pointing us to that. And I think that in itself encapsulates where we're at. People are afraid to speak out of turn. Diplomats, normally who would be engaging more on the side with other diplomats of other countries, they're not doing that anymore. Everything has to go through this 
some sort of process. I mean, Shi's word is, that's it, right? This is what the world's getting. And this is the only sense that we really have of where the country is headed. And if they're pointing us to that and you look at the content of that speech, I mean, he talks about building the military up. He talks about his own doctrine, Xi Jinping thought, continuing under that, building uh, a socialist country with Chinese characteristics, a lot on the ideology front, riling up the nation over patriotic sentiments like on Taiwan, being able to conquer Taiwan. I mean, these are the things that he is now focused on, that he has been focused on for quite some time, but now has zeroed in on. And on his rise up in his career, perhaps being kind of quiet, but once he got to the top, he made no effort to hide his ambition anymore. And so I find that very interesting that that was their response to us on the record. Uh, we haven't heard anything else yet off the record, but I, I would presume that at some point we'll probably get something. And what would what would a typical response look like? Is it basically... You know, telling you that you suck, or or that the uh, the telegraph are running dogs of the capitalist pigs. What what does a response uh, from the Chinese government after you have already run something like this look like? It's a little bit of all of that. Uh, the foreign ministry often calls you in. They've called me in many times to yell at me for my work. They've had printouts of my work down to certain words that they're upset about, uh, that they take issue with. And they issued public uh, takedowns of my work that they'll put on the embassy website, the Chinese embassy in the UK, things like that. Uh, that's sort of par for the course in a way at this point, that they would express indignation and say that what our reporting is incorrect or whatnot. I mean, that is something that I've come to expect. I think this sense that we don't know where the red lines are anymore is that would this would they react in a way that would be even stronger than before because of this reporting because of this time because of what we're covering because of the title of the podcast even and that you know that that's the thing that frankly i think scares every single journalist they are not going to back down on this idea of hostage diplomacy they have done this before they're still doing it in case that m- many people have likely heard about is the one of the two Michaels, Michael Spaver and Michael Kovrig, two Canadians who were imprisoned in China for more than two, I think almost three years possibly, um, because China was mad that Canada had detained a Chinese tech executive on order of the U.S. for an extradition request. And this is the game that they're playing now. Even the last few weeks, there was an incident where Chinese diplomats in the U.K. outside the consulate in Manchester were beating up uh, Hong Kong protesters, they were protesting outside the consulate and diplomats started hitting them. I mean, this, you know, you, there's so many ways to say this, right? The gloves are off. This is a state that is going to act however they wish. And you're not even safe outside the country, as that particular incident demonstrates. And we've seen this happen in different countries in different forms. But it's very clear. China, frankly, doesn't care if it feels like it needs to stand up for itself, it's going to do what it thinks it needs to do to send a message. And do you really want to be that person that they try to make an example out of, right? That's the line that I, that's, that's the line that I think would be, frankly, bananas. If they cross that with foreign journalists, they really, I mean, who knows, right? And it's, 
it could happen tomorrow. I mean, they've done it with Chinese journalists. They've done it with an Australian journalist who works for Chinese media. I mean, the, the signs are all pointing in that direction. And that is, frankly, a very scary place to be going. So you are now uh, safely in Taiwan. Two questions. One is, what happened to all your stuff? You've, you've been living in Beijing for five years. One day you up and left. There's a piano. There's, you know, you, you have some stuff. What happened to it? And <laughs> yeah. the second question is, what happens to you now? You're obviously yeah. not going back. What, uh, you know, do you, uh, camp out in Taiwan indefinitely or is there, uh, what's the next Sophia Yan act other than, uh, playing piano for Lawfare Media? <laughs> you know, everything's like a work in progress. Everything's a work in progress. It's been so, it's moved so quickly. I'm still covering China. I'm just doing it from Taipei for now. If for some reason things relax and get better, maybe I'll go back. Again, I don't see politically how things are going to change all that drastically in the next couple of months. But it is a place I've spent a lot of time thinking about and covering. So it is definitely hard to sort of abruptly have to go like that. Uh, my stuff is sort of scattered everywhere now. It's like I was looking for, what was I looking for today? Oh, a swimsuit. <laughs> I just like I've got suitcase. I mean, it's just, oh my goodness, that is its own mess. <laughs> I do need to find a piano to practice on in Taipei, though, so if anybody's got leaves, <laughs> if anyone's got one, I can borrow. <laughs> I've been looking for a practice room rental, so yeah, all a work in progress. <laughs> we are going to leave it there. The podcast is How to Become a Dictator. The publisher is The Telegraph. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, the reporter and narrator of the podcast is... Sophia Yan. Uh, Sophia, glad you are safe, uh, as will all fans of Lawfare be. And uh, thank you for joining us today. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Benjamin Wittes. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.